Psych Comedy. I'm Nathan Cassidy, stand-up comedian and Bachelor of Science in Psychology, a subject I've been studying for 25 years and a quarter of a century of exploring the fascinating way our minds work on and off stage alongside being a stand-up for the last 72 years has led me here today discussing the psychology of comedy with today's very special guest, the fantastic comedian, writer and actual psychiatrist, Benji Waterstones. Benji, hello. 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 It's great to have you here. You're joining me on the Psychomedy sofa and sticking with the tradition of this podcast, not looking me in the eye for the duration of this. I don't suppose you uh, do that, do you, anymore with any of your patients, do you? Have them lying back? And well, mate, you've touched on one of the, the common things. People, the people are very confused, aren't they, about the, what all these different roles are. Mm. So you, I think you're talking about psychoanalysts. Yeah. They you do a lot of couch work. But psychiatrists don't really do that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. no one knows what who who what we do really. Well, hopefully we'll find out a little bit more today. So we were releasing two episodes around the same time, a double header expert special. So I talked with Neil Martin, professor of psychology, uh, and now yourself. How higher can we go on a podcast about psychology and comedy than with an actual qualified and practicing an eminent person in both disciplines? So, um, firstly, congratulations on the book deal. You've been busy writing your first book, which is called... Thanks, mate. Yeah, it's called uh, You Don't Have to Be Mad to Work Here. Mm. So this is a, a memoir of your yeah. decade as an NHS psychiatrist. That's, That's right. right. Yeah, mm. yeah. How's the writing going? It's going okay, thanks. It's, it's obviously been a new thing for me. I've not written a book before, so... Um, yeah, I mean, it's... It's it's been it's been great. I mean, <clears throat> it's kind of overwhelming at times because I had written a bit before, but the difference between writing little articles here and there and then writing a book, I think, is a little bit like like so. I did these like um, sample chapters that went out to the publishers, and then they were like, "Great, yeah, we really love those. So we'll have a book, please." And then they give you a deadline, which is a bit like jumping from like a five spot, say, mm. to someone wanting to see you do an, a, your debut hour. Yeah. It's like that sort of acceleration. So it's been quite intense, but it's been great, yeah. Nice. And can we have any spoilers on the book? Uh, are, you, are you writing about stories of colleagues, patients, management? All of those, really. I mean, I guess the kind of elevator pitch is that it's the... Um, it's a kind of fly on the padded wall account of uh, uh, the mental health world, but that busts some myths along the way, i.e. there are no padded walls. <laughs> and um, yeah, and it's kind of has obviously the professional side, which is clinical stories, but then it does give a bit of myself. It's quite personally revealing, I suppose. Mm. And then, and I suppose that's just to show the blurred lines really between the the inverted commas professionals and the patients mm. and uh, but yeah management obviously get in there and the state of the NHS and so does it talk about your own your own kind of background and psychology in this book then it does yeah mm. because one of the I suppose one of the questions that I've been one of the central questions in the book is like that it exposes why would anyone in their right mind choose to be a psychiatrist mm. and um I guess that's something I've been wondering for, well, for a lot of my career, really, and through uh, my own personal therapy, 
I think I've sort of made sense of sense of it really. And uh, I guess the short answer is I think I went into psychiatry because I had this fantasy, as a, with a lot of people who go into this, these sort of mental health roles, I think I had this fantasy that I was going to get the secret codes, you know, to fix my own family basically. And then you get there and you realise, oh yeah, there are no secret codes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, and yeah. Yeah, so I guess, and again, and I suppose when, when you realise that, and also psychiatry is quite controversial for lots, for various reasons, but I suppose I've become quite burnt out and disillusioned and sometimes wonder if I'm causing more harm than good. And I actually left, I actually left mm. because, well, partly be, because, you know, I was burnt out myself. But I basically left in, um, had to fight to get out as well because there's so few, there aren't enough psychiatrists already, so they weren't really keen to let me go. But when I eventually got it approved, it was March 2020, and then the pandemic <laughs> happened, so I came back after like a fortnight, so yeah. <laughs> so you still, are you still there? Are you still working alongside writing the book? I've actually only, I've literally just finished my training, so I'm now eligible to apply to be a consultant psychiatrist mm. um the boss basically which is which would be good because i could practice psychiatry in a hopefully a more humane way as i see it anyway because there'd be no one above me telling me how to do it i guess that's interesting i mean is, is there a conflict in this book then in, in terms of what you're writing about if you're not that level of um psychiatrist then you're you know, can you expand on that in terms of making your own way? Humane's an interesting word. Yeah, well, humanity gets lost in psychiatry a lot of the time, unfortunately, because mental illnesses are, are very distinct from physical illnesses in the, in the sense that um, when you are a, a psychiatric patient, especially if you have a serious mental illness, which is what is something like schizophrenia, which are the sort of people that, I sort of specialise in and look after. You unfortunately forgo a lot of human rights that, that people without schizophrenia, I suppose, take for granted, like your autonomy, your liberty, your right to decide what goes in your body. Whereas psychiatric patients on the wards where I work with that sort of diagnosis, unfortunately, um, don't. And, you know, they get sectioned if they stop taking their medication, they'll get brought into a hospital, and if they don't want to take the medicine, they'll be sometimes physically restrained and have it forcibly injected. Mm. And so when that's happening, you can sometimes wonder, obviously, if you're on the right side of history, really, um, it's quite confronting, especially when you look at the history of psychiatry and like the, the way that we've practiced inevitably, if you look back on it retrospectively, we always consider as being barbaric. So I guess sometimes wonder what about our current practices will my grandkids look back on in horror, you know? And I think the way that we do, we do forego people with these diagnoses, their human rights, just because we're so fearful of what they might be like or how dangerous they might be to society if they're not medicated, might be one of those things. Mm. Yeah. My goodness, this book is going to be a, a blockbuster. It just sounds... Um just sounds fascinating can't wait for it when's it when's it out thanks i want it it's coming out in spring 2023 so I 2023 mean, yeah i mean do get on with your life in the meantime <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, but I think it just needs... It's because I've not actually finished it yet. Yeah. I'm submitting it... Um, I've, I'm on my third draft now. I'm mm. submitting it to my publishers at the end of February is the supposedly final, final deadline. Okay. But then I think they want like a year of kind of build-up and you yeah. send it out to people, get quotes and all that sort of they stuff. They need to type it up, don't they? It takes a yeah. while. <laughs> <laughs> Read your handwriting. 80,000 Getting spell-checked. Yeah. It's a nightmare. Yeah. These things take 20 years, don't they? No, it sounds, uh, sounds amazing. So you say you went um, to when the pandemic hit. You, you know, you're obviously talking about schizophrenia and all these issues. Um, did did the pandemic? Have you been dealing with people on a kind of um, lower scale of issues um, caused by the pandemic? I mean, have you been dealing with um, other types of issues during this time caused by the pandemic? Yeah. Well, the the, the, the unfortunately the state of the NHS as it is, and you know, with austerity and service provision and the lack of resources that there are in mental health you need to be at quite an extreme level of need to even get through the door basically so mm. no I don't really see people with like anxiety and yeah. do you know what I mean I only see people who are like having psychotic really quite severe psychotic episodes or sure. people who are so depressed they've taken a real good attempt at you know killing themselves mm. so and that's the that is another limitation with with services as it is, it's just firefighting at this stage, you know, yeah. there's no space for thinking about anyone. Um, uh, and, if, and, if, and if there was someone with more moderate or mild problems, the message essentially is, well, go away and just come back when you're worse, basically. So, um, right. yeah. yeah. My goodness, and there's going to be so many people in that situation. And um, yeah, who knows where we're going to be after lockdown five or whatever's coming up my goodness yeah, yeah yeah although interestingly you know the relationship between the lockdowns and the pandemic and mental health isn't always as kind of obvious as you might think you know like everyone anticipated the reason i came back was because there was this anticipation there's going to be as the royal college of psychiatrists called it a tsunami of mental health problems but that words being used a lot recently yeah and you know like the the shipping forecast wasn't great for psychiatry or mental the mental state of the nation even before then. Mm. So obviously I legged it back. Um, but it, on the front line, you know, at ground level, it's kind of hard to gauge. Uh, that certainly hasn't been the experience, I don't think, of, of people. But it's hard to gauge. That tsunami never came, basically. Mm. And that might be because people are more resilient than we give them credit for, or it might be because those guys... I think one of the reasons is because psychiatric wards are always full to the point of saturation like they're always like a hundred they're always above a hundred percent capacity mm. i think they're like a hundred and one percent because people sleep on like sofa beds and in utility rooms and all the rest of it mm. so it's like you don't you never really feel that extra pressure and also i guess another quite sad thing was that my patient group like people with serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia or bipolar they've often experienced the losses that the pandemic brought to to the rest of us like they've already lost their their jobs and their social supports and their economic stability and all these things so it actually didn't really affect them too much and it would be kind of sad when i'd say to patients i'd say oh how are you coping with this lockdown they'd be oh it's no it's no different mm. this is just my life you know so yeah i think that 
that's what I see kind of anecdotally around my friends and family that they're all suffering to a certain extent with anxiety around the current situation but mm. they wouldn't go and see anyone about it it's just mm. this is life now this is how I feel and as you say the I think they're aware of the pressures on the NHS that they wouldn't want to worry the NHS before it got incredibly serious so I think they're probably if not a tsunami there's a there's a you know there's some choppy waters and uh, they're just yeah. they're just ignored um <laughs> that's it. I mean, some a, people definitely got worse because, I mean, all the th all the impacts of the pandemic, like losing your career and your livelihood and your purpose and your, you know, contacts, those are all the things that usually impact negatively on mental health. Mm. So that, that bunch of people, I'm sure, was certainly impacted. But then for a lot of us who have our basic needs satisfied, like a roof over our heads and money, and I think we we coped a little bit better than people anticipated, really. Yeah. And also there's a weird kind of blitz spirit in these things. Like That's where I found the, mm. the energy to come back because I always felt so conflicted being a psychiatrist before I left. But then when there was this very common, undeniable enemy in the form, well, I thought it was undeniable, in the form of coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there, there was this kind of camaraderie and blitz spirit that just gave me the sort of will to go back and muck in, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. Certainly not undeniable. You're saying coronavirus exists, Benji. That's, con <laughs> that's controversial. Um, so you mentioned career and purpose. Let's turn to your other career and purpose, comedy. So you've done many shows, award-winning shows, which uh, cover elements of mental health, psychology and therapy, as well as other things, of course. I listened to you a while back on the Sharp Scratch podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, and you were saying there how comedy disarms the seriousness of the subject and you finding an audience to talk about this stuff through comedy that usually wouldn't be talked about in the same way so I've seen your shows and many of your gigs and I've seen that in action um, how would you say generally audiences are taking to your stuff around these subjects I think um, well it's generally I think uh, they take to it well. I guess it's a kind of self-selecting audience, the people who come to my shows. They yeah. kind of generally, I market them in quite a clear way that the focus is going to be quite, it's going to be quite mental healthy. And I guess I include the, the, the trigger warnings and that sort of stuff. So you shouldn't be too surprised if you come to a show. But I, having said that, the stuff that my club comedy I don't really have anything else. I also just do that stuff in club comedy as well. So yeah. I do sort of force that on people on a Friday and Saturday night too. And um, Has there been a bigger take-up, do you think? Because I've seen some of your recent gigs. And as soon as you mention you're a doctor, I mean, people obviously love you in a way that maybe <laughs> they didn't three years ago. So there's that instant love for you. And actually there's... Um, there's, a, there's because everyone is suffering to a certain extent with all these issues, it's like, oh, not only do I love you, I want you to talk about this, please talk about this, and please make it funny. Do you feel like that's happened during the pandemic, or is this just me? I think, to be honest, I think people have always had a slightly... Uh, um, There's a reverence. Yeah, a reverence around doctors, which, which is probably a bit undeserved to be honest with you <laughs> and like it is kind of all awkward when you just yeah as you say like you some yeah that is a new phenomenon where I'll just do the setup to a gag by saying I am a junior doctor whatever hence moving into comedy and then they'll just do a round of applause often 
<laughs> just from yeah. from that. That doesn't happen when I used to say I was a banker. Right? <laughs> but people are very, you know, we all like to generalise and have these kind of heuristics, I suppose. And I suppose the idea is that nurses are angels and doctors are, are angels too. And mm. uh, But um, obviously life's a bit more complicated than that. But yeah, I think maybe people, I think to be honest with you, I sense people are, le- it's, People, I have noticed there is an insatiable appetite for mental health mm. uh, stuff, yeah. and you know, like my 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 shows, they always like sounds really showy, but my I'm not pretending it's me, but my shows always sell out basically. Like when I've been doing these recent runs in Edinburgh, mm. like just through the branding of it being a mental healthy thing, mm. I think it's mainly. I mean, it is that to be honest with you, because I don't have a massive profile. But they just they just sell out. And then I was getting extra shows on at the ballroom, you know, the ballroom in Laughing Horse. Yeah. That was just selling out in like mm. a day. So people really want to hear this stuff because I think people are kind of being being given permission to talk and think about mental health a bit more now, haven't they? Yeah. As yeah. awareness has been promoted, I guess. Well, certainly over the last ten or fifteen years, it, when it wasn't talked about ten or fifteen years ago, and now it is talked about in kind of other circles. But I think you're at the forefront of really talking about it in a comedy way and making these subjects funny. And um, I mean, I guess this does this reverence give you even a, a little bit more license to go deeper into. And as you say, if you've got your audience coming knowing what mm. it's branded as. It's, mm. uh, it must be a lovely freedom, mustn't it, to talk about these issues in greater detail and kind of maybe push the boundaries a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny, like, that phrase, push the boundaries. I'm not sure what boundaries I'm pushing. I'm literally just trying to talk about real, potentially unsettling things. Yeah, but that is know, pushing the boundaries, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose of, um, it is. Pushing, you know... 40 years ago, the boundary was just, let's talk about my wife. And yeah, 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 <laughs> So exactly. the boundaries changed, and now you're talking about people with schizophrenia or anything, and uh, that wasn't your really... I mean, I can't think of any other people that are talking about that in the way that you are. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to give you a round of applause, that's all. Really. Um, <laughs> well, I think, obviously, my, my being a psychiatrist, I think, gives me a licence to do that because it's talking from an informed... Yeah. place yeah. but what I've also learned is that it's it's kind of unfair and I guess this is why the other element of the book is this this is the personal side it's kind of I feel it's kind of unfair to talk all about patients and even though it's obviously all anonymized and amalgams of different people it's unfair to always just talk about patients so I'm also quite generous I think in in what I'm gonna be revealing about myself you know uh-huh. Um, which which is is an unconventional thing for psychiatrists to do because they, usually we have to practice this um, we're encouraged not to give personal disclosures mm. like to not really share anything of ourselves mm. which has always struck me as really unfair and patients would always ask me about me and then they're kind of like we'd be taught to just say you know like a classic pass back like oh this isn't about me this is about you mm. um, which isn't really how normal human interactions work. That's great. I mean, talking about your own therapy and having your own therapy and revealing more about you, I think it is really helpful when you're talking to someone else and trying to understand their issues. And I think it's helpful in 
like with with comedians, they often talk about their mental health challenges in shows, for example. And I've had many more than a hundred people on this sofa or talking, you know, with them in the Daily Dose shows, and often mm. many of them have opened up about their mental health challenges. But then, with regards, and they they will talk about it in their own shows. But then, certainly, well. I've got now experience of a couple of fringe Edinburgh fringes and other festivals where mental health support is being offered for comedians and the uptake is very low. Yeah. So there is a disconnect, I think, between people just wanting to maybe <laughs> monetize is the wrong word, but um, you know they want to use this for their art, mm. but do they actually want to, um, you know, talk to? therapists and deal with these issues yeah. maybe maybe indeed dealing with the issues would stop the art so they are they are and i mean but that is a that is a point i mean you know we've had people on this sofa one or two in particular who have said being happy and for example being in love is a barrier they mm. feel it's a barrier for their art there is a disconnect between people actually wanting to sort out their or make some make some headway on their mental health challenges. Yeah, but that's I think, interesting. I think yeah. could be improved over. The, I know, you know, the um, thread up that we partner with on this podcast. They're trying to make changes, and I know Martin Willis was doing some stuff around he was with mental health in 20, yeah. fringes. But the take up is very low. Yeah, enough. that's interesting. An interesting yeah. finding, isn't it? I actually did something with Angel and with Mar Angel Comedy and with Martin Willis. Mm and with Ruby Wax and some of the nice people, a little a chat during the pandemic on it. And that was the finding that they found. They, they sent, I think they sent a questionnaire to all their comedians. Mm. And that was also their experience that actually, yeah, when people are talking into microphones, it sounds like, oh my God, like why a psychiatric hospital is not full of comedians. <laughs> but then the uptake for any support was really low. Mm. And that might be that actually yeah, as you've said, we're in comedy right now is being incentivized to kind of make squeeze out our misery, I suppose. And um, mm. and you notice that on festival forms, like I've just I noticed that on um, I think it's basically I'm doing a, a festival soon, just road testing the chapters. And mm. there's like a tick box, you know, there's like tick boxes for certain things that mm. people want to see more of. And there's now one for mental health. And I was like, oh, that's interesting because that's essentially. Um, it's incentivizing people to to talk about these things, and mm. that, I guess that can be inauthentic if you if you're not really feeling them, right? Mm. Uh, but you just want to get into the festival potentially. Mm. But then, as for that comment about people, maybe yeah, maybe the maybe it's that actually comedians are more resilient than we think and not more unwell than the general population, mm. which, to be honest, is my would probably be my bet. If it's that, or is it that? You know, there's still so much stigma that people won't won't take up support. But if anything, I think comedians are the more open-minded people that would take on um, stuff if it was offered. But then that idea that if you were inverted commas cured from all your your misery, your art would your art would uh, suffer. That's quite an old-fashioned. Like there are all these all these myths, these these ideas that 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 kind of gene artistic genius is linked with madness is like is a really funny old-fashioned idea and there's only like my experience is that art that is that is that mental illness is generally not good for art there's a handful of people that we like to romanticize like 
Stephen Fry or Robin Williams. But generally, mm. if you're like so manic or so depressed that you can't get out of bed in the morning or you just, I don't know, run into traffic, you're not going to be creating a lot of great stuff. And it's not like art, it's not like, um, I always think, like it's not like um, talent scouts are coming to the, the art group on the psychiatric ward <laughs> where I work, you know. <laughs> It's a nice, it's a, it's a nice idea, obviously. <laughs> yeah, it's good to have you on and kind of challenge maybe some of the things we've talked about on psychomedy over the years, and that's why it's um, yeah, it's good to see the other side of the the other side of the fence. Um, but having said that, it can also uh, uh, say, uh, let's say, a sadness can also motivate your art, right? If what's dri- I think what drives a lot of comedians is this idea that that like they will I don't know everyone has their own goals right mm. and um I'm sure it can be a motivating factor the idea that when you get this this carrot everything's gonna you know you're gonna feel better everything's gonna be all right mm. so I'm sure it's a driving force you know people's sadness I'm sure is a driving force yeah but I don't think in of itself it's like it helps necessarily yeah, nice. so we we talked about your shows and your gigs and maybe as you say, the the reverence and and then there's the specific things you talk about in your sets. So as you say, joking sometimes about the patients can be a difficult, you know, a difficult thing to do as a professional psychiatrist. So the butt of the joke is never the patients, it's you or the system generally. Mm. Um would be a, would be an obvious thing to say. Um, I've also heard you talking about maybe it's on another podcast when you're talking about this stuff. It's difficult when you take a bit that you do out of context. So as you say, when you introduce the fact that you are a psychiatrist, the reverence, then you can you know I watch you in your sets get a bit deeper and deeper, and then sometimes some other more hard hitting stuff comes a bit later. Mm. So with that in mind, let's mm. take a bit totally out of context (laughs) in your set and this we're going to play a clip in now this is you talking about how turning to Alexa may not be the best thing to turn to for mental health problems Alexa I'm probably being a hypochondriac but I have a headache a brain tumor occurs when abnormal cells form within the brain there are two main types of tumors So I thought, okay, maybe physical health is not her forte. I'll do some mental healthy ones. Today is the fifth anniversary of my cat's death. Congratulations. That's great. I feel like I want to go to sleep and never wake up. 8 a.m. alarm cancelled. So that was a clip from the Camden Comedy Club and showing how, you know, people go for your stuff and it's just um, such brilliant stuff. But something happened on that gig, actually, that, that, that you said had never happened before, which is yeah. quite interesting. We got an email from... An audience member. Oh my God! Saying, I don't know you got emailed. Yeah, we got an email. Well, oh they emailed God. the club, 
and oh you know you saw God. the laughter in the room then and i've never seen you go anything but you know brilliantly and um uh, but we got an email from one person saying it had triggered them because of a yeah. um a family situation yeah and we wrote back and we said you know as a mental health professional yourself and an experienced comedian you're in no way belittling the issue of mental health through these jokes and and instead you were shining a light on stuff all the things mm. that we'd naturally say uh, shining a light on stuff we don't talk about yeah and they were they were happy with that response i think they just wanted to you know voice that yeah. um and you say that's never happened before no um how, how did you i mean how did you feel when i when i mentioned this to that, you that's, it was a while back that's mortifying it's mortifying it was mortifying then and the fact they filled it up with an email i didn't know that because yeah i remember that instance obviously because it was um yeah you were there and then and then and that girl walked past and she said mm. i just want to let you know my i think she said that my brother killed himself this week mm. or last week or something mm. and um i think i probably said something like oh that's really awful I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that and then and then she was out the door and then that was it really mm. but she was obviously saying it in a kind of um have you never had that before then have i've never? literally never had that before oh, well, yeah and um and as you say, like this is, I guess, the danger of pushing that stuff on a Friday or Saturday night mm. to these people who have just turned up for, a, a, you know, an evening of entertainment. Mm. Um, yeah, but I think like, well, that was a good, I, th I like your response because I suppose the response to the email, that's exactly what I would say, really. Mm. And that is my justification. And it's why, like, just even having heard that comment, I probably won't, I mean, I definitely won't stop doing what I'm doing because yeah. I think on the balance, on balance, the feedback that I've been getting from people whose relatives have committed suicide as well a lot of the time have actually been, it's been more, it's been more gratitude and saying thank you for talking about this. Like, mm. I've had like a whole family come in not, uh, at the last Edinburgh and again, a family member had, had sadly committed suicide and they were all sat there and they said, at the end, they were just like, they were just so grateful. They were just like, we have just not been talking about this. And thanks so much for talking about it and showing that we can talk about it and, and normalizing it a little bit and not being so like precious and like overly sentimental about every about it, you know, because I think that's the danger is when when you do that, people worry about saying the wrong thing and and just don't have the conversation. And there's only one thing worse than talking about suicide, and that's not talking about suicide, right? I mean, that's that's what's obviously represented in the the suicide statistics of men being mm. so represented there, you know. So 75% of suicides are male, biggest killer of men under 40. And I've seen it, you know, I've seen it in my personal life. One of my best friends from university, his cousin, unfortunately, hung himself. And it was just after it happened, we went for a pint, and I was going, are you all right about about your cousin? And he was going, why are you talking about that? Why are you talking about that? And I was like, well, Matty, how, I mean, what else do you want to talk about? What else are we going to talk about? Mm. But yeah, he's even like of my generation and, and, the, and that idea was kind of odd to him, but it's generally thought to be unhelpful to to deal with difficult things by just, you know, suppressing them really. Yeah, absolutely. And every gig I've seen you at, and as you say, um, from your experience, you know, it's such a it's such a positive thing to do and talk about. And I think even the fact that I can't quite remember the email. I don't think we got an email back, or it certainly wasn't. It was like 
it was just thanks very much. It was, um, I think sometimes somebody's going to raise something or you probably had people who haven't raised it and then thought something and then maybe thought differently about it because you are dealing with it in such a, you know, you're coming at it from, um, as you say, an experienced psychiatrist and an experienced comedian. You, um, you're pushing the boundaries, but you're not getting it wrong. You're getting it absolutely right. And it's, uh, it just, it's, it is great to see. It's um, from such a unique perspective, you know, shining a light on these things and then making them funny. It's just, uh, it's Thanks, just great. Thanks, mate. Thanks. Well, that tone is obviously vital because, mm. you know, that's what, what, on that British Medical Journal podcast that I think you're talking about, about the sharp scratch one, we were talking yeah. about gallows humour and its appropriateness because obviously there's been lots of doctors that have moved into the realm of comedy recently. Uh. Adam Kay and all those guys, I suppose. And yeah, the tone is, as we know from all comedy, like the, 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 uh, the nuance of a joke is so important, like who the target is, where, the, where it's coming from, if you trust the person telling the joke. Um, yeah if it's punching up or down or wherever. It's, it's so complicated. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So. And, and yeah, just going back to that business about it being taken out of context, I can only think that that girl, it was obviously very raw for her. Mm. And because that joke about Alexa, the butt of the joke is clearly not anyone with suicidal thoughts. It's, it's, it's uh, the gag is really about Matt Hancock, you know, tech obsessed Matt Hancock. Yeah. And his kind of ridiculous thought that um, we should turn to technology and the limitations of the technology. Mm. And Matt Hancock is obviously a, a high status guy who can cope with it, as is Bezos, who is the richest man in the world, who makes Alexa. So it's like, yeah. I think those guys are okay. But some maybe she just heard the words. <laughs> you know, so, as sometimes happens, I right? Was, I was triggered by you having a go at Jeff Bezos. How dare you? you know, it's <laughs> like, he should be off limits for comedy. You're punching down there. <laughs> yeah. No, but, you know, I, I mean, in these situations, you're going to be triggered just from the fact that you're a psychiatrist talking about these, you know, it would have been other bits of your material as well. You yeah. know, so, I mean, I'm the same with Alzheimer's. There's so much dementia in, in, there's been so much dementia in my family that if anyone starts talking, if anyone mentions the word dementia, I'm like, oh, I'm not finding you funny now. Sure, exactly, um, exactly. It's, it's and, maybe, and maybe her brother, for all we know, was under a, psychi a psychiatric team and, you know, maybe even a, a white male psychiatrist who looked a little bit like me, mm. you know, and I guess most psych a lot of psychiatrists do look like that, and so um, it maybe same felt, as, same as most comedians. So. Yeah, so it maybe <laughs> felt a bit a bit much seeing a guy yeah. seemingly yeah. all right in himself, and maybe even occasionally smiling on stage. Mm. Yeah, I, yeah, I get it. I totally get that. Yeah. So going back to your own. Psychology. It's so interesting. You're going to be talking about this in the book, and you've mentioned some things about, you know, what's potentially made you go into this kind of work. That was, that was so interesting. Because in this in this podcast, we do look back at, you know, people's childhoods in terms of making them, you know, uh, a comedian. And um, was there anything in your childhood that um, smacked of smacked of comedy? Because often. You know, I mean, the psychiatry came first with you. Often when I'm talking mm. to comedians, there's several things in childhood that point to, you know, point towards why they became comedians. I mean, the, what, the example that I use for me is that I associated being loved with um, people laughing mm. at me. So every time someone, my mom laughed at me, I felt that that was love. Yeah. Um, because she didn't say, I love you. It was uh, when she laughed 
that was her saying, I loved you to me. So that's a kind of clear example of that. Yeah. Is there anything that's um, from your childhood that's, you know, um, I mean, do you talk about this in the book at all in terms of your comedy or is it purely on the psychiatry? Um, I, I, don't, I don't reference the fact that I'm really, I don't actually talk about comedy really mm. in the book. It just has some lightness in it in the writing, you know. Yeah. So is there anything going back to your childhood that has led you to, uh, led you to comedy? I think my childhood probably is is responsible for my general unhappiness, I suppose. And obviously, comedy can seem like a a nice uh, remedy for that. I think that's probably I think that's probably the 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 thing. Although I've realised actually, I don't think it really is a remedy. The more I've tried it out, um, but yeah, it's funny what you say about like the the formative. It's funny like. No, nothing about my comedy was something that came very late to me. If mm. anything, my dad used to weirdly shout, he used to shout, stop laughing. He always used to shout at me and my brothers to stop laughing. And uh, which is kind of, kind of weird. And I sometimes think, you know, our house growing up was, um, my parents are very, very loving, just to be super clear from the top. But like, we also live, live in the middle of nowhere in like a very remote, disconnected place. And there was just a lot of, unhappiness and suicidal gestures and violence and it's like I think the way that we the way I have coped and well I have coped as a lot but me and my brothers we always used to comedy used to be our sort of escape from that like we used to love we used to just listen to like Blackadder and Faulty Towers and just used to love that And, and I sometimes think that the comedy as we know comedy can be a really useful defense in processing like shitty stuff basically if you can turn something into a punchline then then you get some some mild relief don't you so mm. yeah i think that's prob- probably where it's come from yeah i think looking looking to be a comedian to make you happy is probably the wrong the wrong thing to do and also becoming a psychiatrist to make you happy is maybe the wrong thing to do so I think you may you possibly pick the uh, so now I'm the, going the into worst. writing just going to try that one out <laughs> and that's what I sometimes say I think Benji do you think you're just like I sometimes think oh this is it Benji you're just one best-selling book away from being happy <laughs> <laughs> but I've to be honest I've made my peace with the fact that this is unfortunately just my nature I think you know because I've changed the externals in my life throughout my whole life you know I've always set these little goals that I want to achieve and then through hard work when I get them I always unfortunately feel the same so it's like I sort of come into the terms and this is how a lot of people think about you know the western psychiatry is obsessed with symptom suppression which we don't have very great solutions for anyway right so I think a more kind of the world I'm moving more into is I think you know is this psychedelic um, research and the kind of philosophy there is is less about symptom suppression, which we're crap at anyway, and more about making sense or coming to terms with and a sort of acceptance of pain. And uh, I think I'm coming around to the idea that I just have to, that life is painful and life is hard. Mm. And, uh, and that's pretty normal, you know? Yeah, I think we go back to why there isn't you know, a lower level of mental health issues being raised up to the NHS because people are just, certainly after the last two or three years, it's like, oh, shit, life is hard. Yeah. We now have to deal with more than we thought we were going to have to deal with and we're just going to have to suck it up. And um, You mentioned 
psychedelic research there? What's... Mm. Through my work as a psychiatrist, mm. I guess I've I've become quite frustrated with the the treatments that we have at our disposal in psychiatry. You know, we're still waiting for our kind of penicillin moment in psychiatry compared to the other medical specialities. Like our pharmacological treatments have very marginal benefits, um, quite grim side effect profiles a lot of the time and uh, patients often don't like taking them and so it's like but then I heard all the his, the hype surrounding psychedelics that this could be you know you've probably heard it as well I mean it's all over the media the radio everywhere that this could be psychiatry's penicillin moment I guess and people saying things like one dose is 15 years of therapy so mm. I thought I should look into that because I know that NHS is nothing if not thrifty and that would be uh, very viable. And so I've been, I've been really lucky to be moved aside. Well, not so, I'm still doing both, but like uh, I've basically been in, helping out with some psychedelic research. Like I was on a, the first randomized controlled trial at Imperial, which was comparing psilocybin, which is the active component in uh, magic mushrooms, comparing that in depressed patients with a conventional antidepressant. Mm. And um, and that was great. And I've actually just been offered another job to be a lead psychiatrist, actually, on a study for another kind of top shelf psychedelic, which I'm thinking about. But I also feel like I feel like I have this duty to just stay in the NHS as well, really. But I think I don't know. It's it's weird. I feel, I need I need to make my peace with the idea that actually maybe moving into research is. Is can be helpful in the long term, even if you feel like you're neglecting, you know, the patients by not mm. not doing that face to face stuff, you know. Yeah. So you talked about this um, psychedelic research in your show, the Ayahuasca Diaries. Mm. Um, so that was the story of how you went to Peru in search of ayahuasca. Can you can you give us a potted version of of your experience with that? Uh, yeah, that was the. I mean, that, I guess, was when I was starting to explore being open about, um, uh, I guess, my own difficulties and my own lifelong search for solutions for me. And then I'd obviously heard this, the hype about ayahuasca, which is like even more magical than the the rest. Like people have tipped it as a miracle cure for literally everything. And so... It's a bit embarrassing that I did it now, given the climate crisis, and I would never do this now. But I did fly to Peru to try this stuff, and and I did have some very profound insights that came from it. And there were some objective, measurable things that I benefited from. But then, uh, as happens often with psychedelics, the bubble burst basically. So it's not it's not a one it's not a miracle cure. But I do still think there's value in them, even if you have to take them, say, every three months or six months or annually or whatever it is. I don't think that's that's like a limitation necessarily. You have to take an antidepressant every day. Mm. Um, and the benefit of psychedelics is that they offer. It's it's interesting because they kind of they're a unique class of medicine in that they bring about. They don't just change brain chemistry or, or whatever. It's all about it, it. It's like it's like a kind of um, a catalyst to therapy. So it brings about the kind of uh, insights that you might get, like more on a therapy couch, but in an accelerated, quicker way, which is kind of convenient given 
you know, you'd struggle to get on an NHS waiting list as it is. Yeah, so it's a bit, it's a slightly more thoughtful way of thinking about it. It's not like thinking, oh, why do I feel like this instead of stop this pain, you know, which mm. is kind of how antidepressants are seen. Is this kind of stuff in the book or I feel like this is an next It's book? not, mate. This is, to be honest, yeah, this is like a whole, For whole other and... thing, really. But let's, yeah, as we draw towards the end of this, let's try and pull together some of the strands that we've been talking about. So, you know, comedians on this podcast experiencing various mental health issues. So we've had people talking about depression, bipolar and OCD, and you've touched upon some of the things, you know, you've gone through. Did you mention in your set you suffer from insomnia? And yeah, I mean, I, I guess... Am I making yeah. that up? No, no, yeah, no, I do have, like... Yeah. Which I guess could be anxiety, could be depression, yeah. Yeah. And, but then you've touched upon how us as comedians aren't possibly different from any other groups particularly. And maybe, Dan, this podcast, we've gone down a road of trying to suggest that comedians do have a different or trying to look for the differences in a comedian's psychology. So obviously mm. all these issues, depression, bipolar, insomnia, OCD, it's obviously not specific to comedians. Mm. But having been in comedy for so many years, you do see certain things in comedians that you don't see in other people's psychology. Uh, generally and we've talked on this podcast for example about comedians having certain traits that are common with um, traits of psychopathy and we've we've mentioned Harvey Cleckley's scale of psychopathy and him talking about 16 factors that the main features of psychopathy were you know this is how this podcast started in a way that you know I was looking at a bit of research for that and the things that were being talked about there in terms of um, some of these factors virtually all of them I was I was just thinking that's a comedian (laughs) he's talking about he's talking about a comedian there being whatever unreliable untruthful insincere egocentric um alcohol, crime, sex life, impersonal, you know, superficial charm, Mm. um, all these things. And I wonder whether you've ever thought about a comedian's psychology at all. Um, I have because, you know, this this sort of sad clown narrative is so pervasive in popular culture, right? mm. That's that's obviously the kind of the the generalisation everyone seems quite keen to get on board with I've ser- I've not I've never it's you know I've, I've only met a few uh, clinical psychopaths in my career and I've never met a comedian that's touched that's given me a whiff of those sorts of guys but then I've never met a comedian who's 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 kind of done some pretty awful horrendous things yeah I don't mean psychopaths I mean just higher on the scale higher on the scale yeah yeah, but this is the thing I guess this is the interesting thing so psychiatry is not really interested in it's only really deals with the clinical level because below a clinical level like who cares kind of thing do you know what I mean you're just Mm. almost like looking for problems it's like (laughs) if you're if you are if you have because you have so little empathy that you don't care about other people's feelings maybe because your amygdala's like got problems, mm. a wiring problem. And the, the consequence of that is that you torture your, like it's happened recently in the media, that tragic case with that kid, is that you torture innocent children, for example. Mm. Then that is bringing about a pretty severe level of dysfunction to your life. It makes sense to 
classify you as perhaps a psychopath in that context, but mm. I don't really see the value of just like saying, oh, well, I'm, I'm sometimes a bit thoughtless or this, that, or the other, so mm. I'm on a scale of psychopathy. It's like, I, I don't see how this over-medicalization of everyday life really helps people. Yeah. Because my experience as psychiatrist is that labels, more often than not, a lot of the time can cause, well, I'm not going to say they cause more, but they can cause just as much harm as good, basically. Because mm. people then, it becomes part of their identity and they live behind it and they turn up at psychiatry's door for solutions and we don't have the solutions. That is such an interesting perspective that, yeah, you're someone that deals with the top end of people with issues and it's, it, it, you know, I think we are coming back to this case of we're going to suffer from these lower levels of things. Yeah, that's so interesting. Why is it interesting? But there is there's so much talk about these lower levels. There's so much talk about these lower levels. Oh yeah, levels they being... dominate. They dominate the mental health conversation. Yeah. and that was another frustration I have when seemingly high functioning on this so uh, yeah, high functioning well people mm. are dominating mental health conversation mm. and getting all the column inches and all the you know, the celebrity, it's, it's all of that. And, it, and I'm just thinking, well, hang on a second. How about like the most disabled people, disabled by their severe mental illness who no one even thinks or knows about, mm. which was another purpose of the book is to kind of be a voice for those guys because unfortunately they're often so well they can't advocate for themselves, yeah. Mm. yeah that's and just to get a bit of perspective on yeah, things, I absolutely. suppose. Yeah, yeah that's such an, such an interesting perspective. So obviously the book is going to take up the next few months of your life. What is, uh, how do you see the future in terms of your psychiatry and your comedy in terms of the ambition or the legacy or maybe it's a bit too early to think about legacy but do you have thoughts about how the next couple of years is going to pan out? I would like to find a way ideally of combining all of these things like being a hopefully being a kind of uh, a, psych a type of psychiatrist, consultant psychiatrist that I feel comfortable with and is, is patient-centred and not just risk-averse and worrying about co uh, and kind of very um, uh, restrictive and paternalistic. I'd like to try and do that. I'd like to also continue the work in the psychedelic research and hopefully that can bring about some good. I'd like to, yeah, I mean, I, I've actually been cooling down on comedy. I've not really been doing that so much. I'm not sure if it's because the literary world was much more welcoming to me, I found. <laughs> like, you know, I've been sort of doing comedy for a little while and, you know, seemingly doing the things that you meant to do, like the competitions or whatever. And like, it wasn't really quite taken off for me, like, I, mm. like people that was around me sort of did. So that made me think, oh, Benji, maybe like you should get the hint here kind of thing mm. and then lockdown was it was kind of funny weird how things work out because it was only in the lockdown that I got I did an online writing course um called Curtis Brown Creative and it was through that that I got the the, the literary agent yep. it's through that that I got the book deal and then the tv deal so it's like maybe people are kind of they're kind of telling me my I think my strength is more in the writing than in the in the straight stand-up, which is kind of what reviewers are always saying about me anyway, is that the strength was in the writing. So mm. I think I'm mainly going to lean into that. But I'm also bringing, I, I want to continue doing comedy because I find I've mainly been doing like the read-through shows to avoid there being any more, look, any more emails, I suppose. 
You know what I it's mean? Just like... one email. <laughs> I'm but sorry I... to bring that up because it's like I've, I've told you about the one person in the three thousand. No, but it is important. Of course, of course, but it's 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 that's why I I I want to because there is an object inverted commas objectivity to comedy, isn't there? in that you try it all out and it passes over a few hundred people's ears. And if it gets past those guys, I'm hoping when it's actually on a page, mm. it won't be totally outrageous or misguided or whatever it is. Yeah. Oh, God, no. I mean, I certainly don't see you giving up the performing. I mean, you're such a great performer that, uh, you know, coming at it from an Adam Kay perspective or whatever, I, I see that totally happening for you and all those, you know, if there have been you know, people ignoring you from a stand-up perspective, I think they're going to be, in, you know, more interested when the book comes out. And um, But on a bigger level, in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of an Adam Kay level, I see that totally happening for you. You mentioned TV there. Is, is, is this something that's going to happen as well? It is. I mean, the, the, the TV rights have been bought by a lovely production company. And, um, yeah, so after the book, I've got to kind of get together with them. and I already am meeting up with them and chatting with them every every month at the minute just thinking about how it will translate to a screenplay and again that's something I've never written I've never done before so that'll mm. be that'll be fun oh great um, so you just what like a film TV film or I think they're thinking more a kind of like a sort of a, like a Netflix sort of six part sort of thing you know right Dram- dramatised kind of. yeah like a I mean like a like a I guess you'd probably call it comedy drama I think yeah, yeah. like a sort of a, a, I mean they were thinking the tone it was so nice because like with the book which had like there was like a big auction for the book and so I got to pick the perfect person mm. and the same with the TV company so I got to pick these guys and the, the way they were talking about the tone just felt like they really got it they were like saying mm. oh we can and the things we it reminds of our it reminds us of are things like uh, the end of the fucking world. I don't know if you've seen that, yeah. or like obviously Fleabag, which are these things that talk about have like a, a level of seriousness and gravity and substance to them, but also have some comedy there as well. Mm. So I was like, oh yeah, you guys, you guys get it. So went with them, yeah. Oh, that's so great, man. So great. Well, yeah. thank you for coming on this before you got far too famous to uh, to agree to do it in the next year or two thank you so much oh, for coming man. on yeah, it's like comedy today I, I can't wait for the book and the TV I can't wait for all the uh, continued success it's uh, so well deserved and more than anything you're a lovely lovely man thanks man. thank you so much for joining me on Psychomedy today so that is our show for today join us again soon for more Psychomedy on Apple Podcasts Spotify UK or wherever you get your podcasts if you liked it please give us a five star review it helps other people to find us and any psychopaths leave three star reviews Psychomedy was written and presented by me Nathan Cassidy BSc in Psychology produced and edited by Mike Hansen BA English for Pop People Productions theme music by Mike as well so that's Psychomedy please subscribe and rate and listen back on all the great episodes so far they're listed in this video clips and more at psychomedy.co.uk and if you'd like to support the podcast for £5 a month and get loads of bonus uncut video and more please go to patreon.com slash Nathan Cassidy and catch my other podcast too it's Daily Notes at dailynotes.co.uk Follow us on social media at Pop People UK, at Psychomedy Pod, at Nathan Casty, and at its underscore Benjis. You've got to work on that. <laughs> You've got to work on that. Now you're, now you're more famous, man. ITS underscore BNJIS. Thanks so much again for all the continued support this year. Happy Christmas. And let's all wish for a better 2022 for us all. Lots of love. 
ball.